Welcome to the New Books Network. The pandemic brought to the fore a group of workers deemed essential frontline healthcare workers, restaurant employees, slaughterhouse workers, and the like, who often faced a difficult choice between risking their health to work or foregoing income that they couldn't afford to do without. Often they had to work even though they couldn't afford health insurance or indeed healthcare themselves if they got sick, another sign of the inadequacy of our health care arrangements. How did the pandemic transform workers and work? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today Jamie McCallum, a professor of sociology at Middlebury College in snowy Vermont. He has just published his third book, Essential, How the Pandemic Transformed the Long Fight for Worker Justice, which came out just in 2022. He's also author of Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream from 2020. And his first book was called Global Unions, Local Power, The New Spirit of Transnational Labor Organizing. That came out in 2013. I confess I've known him for quite a while. He's a PhD in sociology from the CUNY Graduate Center, and we're very pleased to have him with us today. Thanks for being with us, uh, Jamie McCallum. Great. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. So let's start with your current book, uh, Essential, which deals with the effects of the pandemic on work and the labor movement. It mainly addresses how the pandemic played out for workers in the United States, but it also has an international dimension. So tell us what it's about. So I started interviewing workers in Wuhan, like immediately. Um, At the time I was teaching the sociology of labor at Middlebury and the students were like, what's going on over there? Is it going to be an issue? And I was like, Maybe, (laughs) you know, so we started talking to people and um, it was really interesting to get um, to find to try to find people in China to talk to because I don't have any direct connections to workers in China that often. So I started off talking to people that were mostly delivery drivers um, and some healthcare workers. And then when the when the pandemic spread to Italy next, mostly in Lombardy, I talked to workers there. Again, healthcare, delivery workers, and retail, and um, and then eventually I traced it back to the United States. So originally, the, the book had actually a much more global scope, but as the pandemic began roiling in the states, I began focusing more in in on that. Um, early on, the work from home transition was interesting to me, just because. It seemed like, well, I was working from home personally, and it seemed like that was going to be a fairly significant uh, change in the way people work, and it has been. But um, ultimately, I was drawn to the people who were left to work face-to-face. Um, in Vermont, where I live, I knew a lot of people who were who were um, essential workers. 
I'm on the fire department. So <laughs> I ended up being on calls with cops and EMS and other healthcare workers who were essential at the time. And it seemed to make more sense for me to focus in in on that. So, uh, I mean, the pandemic obviously transformed our relationship to work in the ways that you were starting to talk about. Um, you and I, you know, basically were in a position to work from home or at least in fairly safe kind of uh, arrangements usually. Uh, but essential workers sort of by definition didn't necessarily have that kind of safety. And and as I said in the intro, I mean, one of the most kind of distressing things about the whole thing was the fact that, you know, often people couldn't even afford health insurance. So they had to go to work right. even, even though – and put themselves obviously at greater risk than you and I had to experience, even right. though they were among the you know, ranks of those who couldn't even necessarily f- afford health insurance. So could you right. talk a little bit about that exp- way that exp- – you know uh, – affected their experience? Yeah. I mean, so on the health insurance question was really interesting because the data in like May of 2020 showed that only about 2 million or 3 million people lost health care when they lost their job. And I was like, oh, that's that's not very many. But then when you consider that like 20 million people didn't already have it um, because they never had a job where their employer uh, paid it and they didn't make enough money to buy it themselves. Um, you had a slew of people who were facing down a deadly virus with no safety net whatsoever. Um, So the biggest struggles early on in the pandemic were mostly over distancing and PPE. Uh, um, So I did, I surveyed workers, about 750 workers in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. Um, And uh, there was, that was, you know, probably around May 2020. And a lot of workers in hospitals, in nursing homes and retail still do not have access to PPE. Um, Like they were still working without, they were still working with like raincoats on, uh, pulled over their their, their mouths and stuff. And, um, you know, just really makeshift kind of of, uh, gear. Um, The interesting thing I began to hone in on, I suppose, was like the union difference. Like unions in healthcare made a it made a real difference whether or not you had access to, to PPE or not, whether or not you had access to paid t- paid sick leave and paid time off. And so in the book, I talk about, you know, a lot about the ways in which we think of workplace safety as the outcome of either, you know, sort of a macroeconomic Oh, you can quit your job, and that incentivizes employers to um, to do right by you, blah blah blah. Or it's a factor of OSHA, where you know government policy gives us safe workplaces. And in fact, I think during the pandemic, um, like class organizing, class struggle, whatever you want to call it, became essential to people's health. And that was one of the ways that people became safer at work when they organized, when they pressured for you know those kinds of things that unions were bringing people, even workers without unions. I mean, a third of the strikes early in the first year of the pandemic were led by workers without unions, which basically never happens in in good times. Uh, It was a remarkable sort of moment of revolt that was, you know, really not captured in the official statistics or snapshot of the pandemic. Like, so if if you looked at BLS data, um, 
for 2020, there was only eight that's, strikes. That's Bureau of Labor Statistics yes. for, for yeah. those who may Bureau, not know. Yes, Bureau of Labor Statistics data shows there was only eight strikes in 2020. Well, that's nothing. There's nothing going on then. But when I began talking to people on the phone, I would call up a slaughterhouse worker and we were talking about other things. And they would say, oh, by the way, there was a strike yesterday. Or we walked off the job. Or we did a sick out or a sit-in, or whatever it was. And all this stuff kept happening, where these small little moments were sort of percolating up uh, in areas where there just wasn't that much, you know, there wasn't, you wouldn't obviously think those were places where people would be organizing. Um, and so to me, that became really interesting, and that became a larger focus of the book. So, you know, could you talk about, you talk about this pandemic proletariat, which I assume, you know, it means something more than just that, that there's alliteration there. I mean, you have this kind of notion that this brought about a certain transformation in workers' consciousness. And yeah. I'm sort of curious if you could expand on that notion and also talk about, you know, the extent to which this is a kind of particularly American phenomenon or how much is this a global phenomenon? or at least international. Yeah. yeah. So the alliteration was a major part of it. Um, but after that, there's a, there's a, a better reason. So the, what I found that was pretty interesting is that, you know, Americans, and this is, you know, comparatively, are less typically like class conscious than, let's say, the Europeans or even Latin Americans and South Africans, for that matter. Um but during the pandemic, something interesting happened in North America, and that is that workers in different industries across other kinds of like demographic cleavages, race, class, gender, age, status, status occupation, began to recognize themselves as having a common, um, they had a common role to play, keeping the rest of us safe and alive and keeping the economy going, et cetera. So, you had a situation where doctors, nurses, janitors in one hospital, morgue workers, delivery drivers who ended up there, retail workers who, who sold them groceries after their shift, all like began talking about each other as if they were part of this, part of this common group. And so in the book, I, I sort of refer to like um, Benedict Anderson's notion of an imagined community, uh, this kind of like you know, a larger than a, a sort of a, a collective us larger than this workplace, for example. Uh, so the kind of thing that scholars refer to as class formation process. And that happened in uh, the U.S. in really significant ways. Typically, like in the in the U.S., when we see when organized labor surges, it tends to be like in industries. Like in the 2018, 2019, we had a huge wave of strikes in education, but they were just copycat strikes in one in one sector. These were sort of percolating around in all these different sectors. And to me, that's a really valuable thing because then you get a sense of, well, this class formation process uh, is is wide and is driving a wide sort of labor organizing surge. In Europe, what I think was interesting, so I did some comparison, comparative research between some essential industries in North America and uh, Germany and the UK. Um, 
it's a little bit different. Like the ways that the ways, for example, that Germans organize uh, unions are in some ways far less confrontational and far less adversarial. They're more powerful and more numerous, but it's not as hard to form a union there or to join one, frankly. It's like you sign, you basically sign up in, in a lot of ways. And so in that environment, um, unions were simply, uh, yes, they had access to more PPE, they had access to more immediate resources, but in some ways they were less or less organized to like push back or fight back. So, um, you know, Amazon workers in North America created much more um, of a stir, much more of a sort of a contentious environment in their warehouses than did than they did in, ma- in many other places. Um, can can I can, can I can I intervene there? I mean, yeah. You know, uh, the story in Germany, as you know, is that, you know, I guess it's above a certain size of the enterprise, but there are these so-called works councils that involve somebody from the from the, you know, enterprise, somebody from the union and somebody from the government. So, you know, that creates a kind of, uh, you know, a body that has to be persuaded that certain policies are acceptable and that sort of thing. And they're different perspectives, obviously. Um, And I can see how that would moderate, you know, uh, potentially at least moderate working class, you know, hostility or whatever. Right, Um, right, right, right. And so that's interesting. And, you know, maybe you could talk about how that works as compared to the kind of situation we have. I mean, you've started to talk about it, but I think it's important for people to understand that there's this institutional reason for what you're describing. Right. Yeah. So, right. There's good things and bad things about a more social democratic or sort of co-determination model that that some they have in in Western Europe. Um, Like, you know, nursing homes in America were the were the epicenter of the pandemic. Um, And then second was probably meatpacking and slaughterhouse and the food processing. Those things were not it was not the same in other places. Um, Germany, for example, Iceland, which I did some research in. Um, So what's different uh, is two things. One is that the size of the enterprise matters when it came to COVID and the pandemic. Like slaughterhouses are much smaller in Germany (laughs) Um, and the lines move much slower, which means that when there was a COVID outbreak in a German, let's say, slaughterhouse, they would just shut it down. And move production somewhere else, and they wouldn't lose as much as they lost in, in America, where slaughterhouses are are basically the size of football stadiums, and um, you just can't shut one down without like destroying some of the food supply in a lot of places. So that 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 model was one difference. The other one was, um, I think you know, like American labor law is decent when it comes to workplace safety. It's just that as it is in uh, some parts of Europe, but the sort of access to the law just didn't exist in a lot of of that time. Therefore, like workers had to defend some degree of safety in the workplace. And if you were accustomed to fighting back, you were more successful at it than if you weren't. Like OSHA in America is actually like, the laws are okay, but OSHA didn't do anything during the pandemic. They didn't expect any workplaces. So workers had to sort of step up and, you know, 
refuse to work without PPE or refuse to work without a, without a longer break or whatever it was. And so from people I talked to, I talked to most people in Amazon, for example, um, like Chris Smalls, who was fired from the Amazon warehouse in Staten Island, um, also had a lot to do with the German Amazon warehouse. And it was, you know, he that said, like, despite all the problems with organizing workers in America, uh, the, you know, American ones were much more organized and militant in a way to defend certain on the job protections than were than they were over there. Interesting. So, I mean, I guess I want to pursue this a little bit more because, as you know, Germany is a place I know a little bit about. And right. <laughs> um, the other thing that, you know, struck me very much during the pandemic was the different policy approaches, uh, particularly to employment and unemployment. So here, basically, people just suddenly lost their jobs. You know, they were right. cut off from, you know, a source of income, but also a source of their sense of who they are. Right. Right. Whereas Germany has this program called Kurzarbeit, which means short work. But basically, the government says, we'll pay you for, I don't know, full time, even though you're only working 20 hours a week or maybe even nothing. But you right. maintain the connection to that workplace. And I think that, you know, makes a huge difference to people to feel like they are somebody. Whereas yeah. if they're suddenly thrown out of work, and have no connection to that place where they used to go all the time, it's very disorienting and de demoralizing. So I wonder if you could talk about that or other yeah. sort of policy differences that made a difference. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the one you're talking about, the, the work sharing program, what we call them work sharing in America, um, are were phenomenally, the difference there was phenomenally significant. So, you know, as you said, American laid off workers uh, like fired them, basically. They lost their, their connection to their job. Uh, Europe largely furloughed them. That is important for two reasons. The one you're talking about, which is the kind of like subjective or affective connection to your your sort of your life, your coworkers, your place of employment, where you make a living, all that stuff is important. The other reason it matters a lot is when all of a sudden, six months later, you want to rehire 20 million people, um, well, it's easier if you just furloughed them. You could just hire them back, right? But if you if you fired a couple tens of millions of people, then they're all getting they're all applying for new jobs at the same time. So you have kind of you know economists call it a reallocation pro, uh, problem, and like so some of the labor shortage in late 2020 was a result of like people had looked for other work. They were not sure if their jobs would come back. Um, their jobs sometimes their jobs did come back. They couldn't easily transition back into them. And so that that incredible reshuffling was a really significant difference. The other thing is that America, um, the United States doesn't really have unemployment insurance. Like we have like a patchwork of programs that basically like there's without being cynical at all about it, like part of the reason part of their impetus is deny to deny uninsurance claims from unemployed workers and um, when they do pay it's like a pittance so like there are some states mostly red states that you know where um i think florida arizona missouri are the bottom three which pay like 20 percent of their unemployed workers unemployment insurance of the people who apply about 20 percent qualify 
So during the pandemic, um, this was awful. Uh, the other the thing that saved it was that the pandemic unemployment insurance program, the PUA, I guess the, uh, Trump called it, um, and then Biden extended, actually was really good. Like it really reformed the unemployment insurance system and people began to get checks who needed them. They, they were enough. And it's a kind of program where uh, people were shocked that it was happening. And it's a kind of thing that, you know, probably should have stuck around um, or we could at least learn something from that program because, you know, the, I mean, you might know a little bit more of this, more of this than I did, but the CARES Act, uh, you know, rivaled any, European social safety net program. It was huge. It was an incredible influx of money. And, and some of that money early on, a lot of it was dedicated to unemployment insurance. And it was really um, from the way we typically compared to Western Europe to then the PUA compared, it was a much, much better situation. Right. I mean, as you say in the book, there were enormous amounts of money spent, uh, you know, during the pandemic by the federal government to, you know, sort of cushion the shock of all this. Not necessarily yeah. all of it spent in ideal ways. And of course, now right. there's a big debate about how much this has to do with the contemporary inflation issue. But, right. you know, the inflation problem is a, essentially a global problem. So it's not right. clear that what we did during the pandemic was you know, is the cause of the current inflation problem. But uh, I mean, I think the big one that, you know, has gotten a lot of attention was the extended child tax credit, which, yeah. you know, based on some research out of Columbia suggests that, you know, child poverty declined by some dramatic yeah. amount, 40%, 25%, whatever it was, it was a, seems to have been a quite big number. So, um, but in any case, I mean, back to the um, sort of the labor movement, I mean, I'm, you know, it strikes me as somebody who doesn't study this, certainly, um, that, you know, labor is kind of having a moment right now. And yeah. I mean, I don't know if you would agree with that, but it seems to me as a kind of reader of the newspaper on these kinds of issues that, you know, the strikes at Amazon, the, the union mobilizations at Starbucks, things like that are, you know, getting people's attention and that labor, the labor movement is in, you know, better, uh, I don't want to say odor, but you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, a, yeah. It's, it's got a better reputation sort of now than it did. And, you know, Biden, I think you talk about this in the book as well, that Biden, you know, has presented himself as this kind of pro-union um, uh, president. And, right. you know, I, I mean, what's going on there? And, and <laughs> again, you know, how much is this happening in, in outside the United States as well? Yeah. So the I think what was, what was, what happened in 2020 because essential workers had such a incredible public profile like it was clear to most people that our lives depended on them you know and not just healthcare workers but retail clerks and dri delivery drivers and food processors and um you know all these other folks uh teachers after a couple months. Um, so I think that gave the American working class a little bit of like a facelift and the problems, the, the answers to problems, in the American workplace, like were dealt with by organized labor or were dealt with by, by disorganized labor in, in bad ways. And so I think, you know, unions became 
like an answer to a problem, like where people like myself have long thought they were the answer. And all of a sudden it became a more popular answer. Um, that was one of the reasons that we're seeing a surge. The other reason is just the, like the resentment, frustration, anger, hostility to working through the pandemic without much lasting change to your job. You know, there was a, a pressure valve released in 2021, probably, that kicked off a surge. Um, so yes, labor is definitely having a moment. I mean, uh, petitions to file union elections are up, I think, 65% from the year before the pandemic, which is an enormous thing. The only word of caution there is that, you know, at the 250 Starbucks cafes that have now voted to unionize or more, um, nobody has a contract. Uh, nobody has a contract to Amazon. Nobody has a contract um, at some of the other more like so, some white collar. Uh, there's been some online media places that I've organized. They're, they're working without a contract. So in some ways, employers have been saying like, look, vote for a union, fine, but nothing changes. You know, go ahead. And actually the Amazon labor union has lost a few votes. Um, since they wanted JFK in Staten Island. So I think there's like, there's a moment and I think there's reasons for cautious optimism. But at the same time, if you think labor history, it doesn't really compare. It's like the upsurge in the 30s. It doesn't really compare to the strike wave in the 70s. Um, it's just, you know, in relation, in relation to what it was like five years ago, <laughs> things are looking pretty good. But um, there's still obviously a major, you know, major inroads to go. Biden was pretty good. Um, he was probably the most pro-union president for like a year that we've had in a, in a in a maybe in my lifetime. Um, but it's a low bar in the United States. It's a pretty low bar. So in, I mean, the international comparison I guess I would make there is, um, I mean. There has been, uh, I'm trying to get about the places I know. I mean, there is actually a surge in labor unrest or labor organizing in China. Um, I don't know if you've seen, been following that news, but uh, sort of Apple factories, other tech factory workers, I mean, not tech workers, but like people who produce that stuff in factories um, have been, like there's been a wave of militant strikes there. It's pretty different than here because unions are, you know, very, very much illegal in most places. Um, but I don't think there's been a similar takeoff, like a grassroots takeoff in parts of Western Europe, largely because there's, you know, not typically that even in good times. That's, again, not totally the way workers organize in in large parts of Western Europe. Um, there is a movement afoot to begin organizing uh, Amazon globally. Uh, which is really interesting just because the Amazon labor unions um, are pretty new and fairly under-resourced. Uh, but nonetheless, there's a sort of a, an idea among those folks that, you know, um, organizing this company wherever it is, is should be on the agenda. And so there's, you know, probably some of that coming down the pike. Right. So uh, maybe as a last question, you know, you sort of, uses an epigraph or epigram, I can never remember which one it is, but uh, this famous quotation of Antonio Gramsci's about, you know, we're in this kind of moment when the old is dying and the new has not yet been born. 
And it's not entirely clear what the new is supposed to be, although we probably know what Gramsci wanted it to be. Uh, but let's leave the soothsaying out of it and you know, tell, tell us, like, what's dying? I mean, I mean the, the, the quotation goes on and you title your, I guess, last chapter about, you know, this business about morbid symptoms. Appear morbid in, symptoms, right. In, in the yeah. But what's, what's dying? What, what do you think yeah. is dying? I mean, I think, like, well... Who knows? I mean, what we thought was dying and what may still be dying, I think, is like um, a notion that um, we can survive and thrive while treating workers like human garbage, basically, which is, you know, essentially what we do. I mean, you know, laborers are disposable um, in many parts of the United States. And I think that that um we learned some small lesson that that is probably bad for all of us like you know the other slogan i guess is like an injury to one is an injury to all it became almost statistically clear or true in a way during the pandemic that if you're if you were in a nursing home where workers worked multiple jobs well they spread covid throughout the nursing home like workers themselves did so the same people that were tasked with saving people's lives we're also spreading the virus. And um, I think the thing that's dying is that that system, we have a general cultural understanding that it's, that it's pretty bad and that it's, that it's dire. The, what has you know, yet to be born, I think, the other part of the quotation is like, what is well, the, the answer to the problem? Like, what can we do about it? In other words, some inching towards a more socialist or social democratic um, political economy. And I think that tension, you know, there's that old saying like, you know, during the crisis, everyone's a socialist and that's not, you know, true necessarily, but I think the crisis did yield a lot of people who were willing to rethink in radical ways, the way our economy is organized. And, um, uh, you know, the public supports, unions at a historic rate and is against large corporations at a historic rate on public opinion polls. So that kind of like sentiment and I think, you know, bottom up cultural shift is happening. The real question is like, what can we do about like How can we make good on it and solidify some of that in real gains? Um, and there's some reasons to think about it in both. Like, I say at the end of the book at one point that, you know, what's most shocking in some ways is like what hasn't changed. Like we still we're still fighting the railroad unions over paid sick days. That's like all they want. Right. <laughs> and you think by now we would have learned that lesson. And a lot of people want them to have paid sick days. But, um, you know, you know, play people in, in both parties are are some extent arguing against that. So I think there's still an open question about whether or not we can really like use the labor unrest that is happening to push for larger systemic change. Right. I mean, I'm struck by the fact that, you know, there are positive, you know, developments out there, uh, you know, of the kind that you've talked about, sort of labor having a, mo a moment. Um, there's also clearly morbid symptoms. Um, yeah. And but in the end, I guess I'm 
not to be a party pooper, but, you know, sort of reminded that Gramsci wrote those words from a fascist, fascist prison <laughs> in 1930. Uh, right. And if you look at, you know, what, ha- what happened in uh, Brazil, for example, the other day, it's uh, a little on the discouraging side. You mean the January 8th, like pro Bolsonaro thing? Yeah, correct. Correct. Yeah. I mean, there's always reasons to be discouraged when it comes to labor. Right. Like it's never a super happy story. And when I talked to workers from the beginning of my book, a year later, when I was finishing it up, they would say, they always said, look, we were last year's heroes, this year's zeros, or people forgot about us. And that totally happened. Um, you know, the question is, is there like a lingering moment in organized labor that's trying to sort of keep the threat alive? And I think there is like, we're going to see this year, like UPS might strike. FedEx might strike. Those those things, you know, if a 10,000 Starbucks is shut down tomorrow, they go on strike, like, you and I won't get our Java chip frappuccinos, but like for a couple of days, but whatever. When UPS goes on strike and shuts down the logistics sector, well, that's different. And those that kind of stuff is in the air right now. So I think that, um, you know, it's not totally um, a downer story. And there's, you know, reasons to, if you sort of, know where to look to look for things that might be you know might provide an interesting kind of future picture right so on that promising note we want to bring this to a close thanks very much for a fascinating conversation that's it for today's episode i want to thank jamie mccallum of middlebury college and once of the cuny graduate center for sharing his insights about the labor movement today Uh, in the post-pandemic sort of, we think, post-pandemic period. Um, Look for us on the New Books Network and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mina Aguilar for his technical assistance and to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song International Horizons as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.